0: The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter twelve describes. Uh, uh, he uh, identifies us as uh, as sacrifices, as sacrifices unto the Lord. And, and if you're, you're familiar with uh, the way in which the altar sacrifice is set up, you have um, what's called uh, horns on the on the altar, and the horns are are there to tie down the sacrifice. And uh, what's interesting though is that uh, at that point, um, you know, as the sacrifice is going to be offered unto the Lord, uh, it's it's actually uh, it's not going to it's dead, right? It's offered to the Lord. But for us, in Romans chapter twelve, verse one, it says, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, to your reasonable service." Is Says. And um, it's a proper response to the Lord, but we are to present ourselves as living sacrifice um, unto the Lord. And it speaks of, um, of that which is a deliberate, conscientious, hopefully, thankful, and joyful exercise in our lives because of the love that God first demonstrated to us. You know, we, uh, we give ourselves to Him in, in every way, and in every uh, manner of speaking of life. Lord. And uh, and yet for us as living sacrifices, we tend to jump off that altar from time to time. And uh we to be reminded that we need to, to get back up on him and just allow him to do what he to live our lives again to his glory. And uh, and then he also speaks of the way in which we are to be sacrifices unto the Lord, and that is in verse two it says, Do not even come to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And, uh, and so, with that, we're, we're learning how to be good living sacrifices to the Lord. And we're reminded that we shouldn't be conformed to the world, but to be transformed uh, by the renewal of our mind through the um, Word God. And so, I was just thinking about that as we were worshiping it. And I do pray. I do always hope that as, as you're here, and that as we spend time with the Lord in devotion, that some of these things would come up, come up in your heart. You, know, you can think of different things, and perhaps how the Lord is ministering to you even through this time of worship. It's a time of preparation, uh, laying before the Lord um, our, our hearts and yes, you know, as Ray said, the business of, of the day. We kind of just allow it to you know, go on um, the side or bring it unto the Lord at that time of worship. And give it to Him. Say, it's all yours. I don't want to be distracted. I don't want something to go wrong or consume my thoughts. I want to give it all to you. And, and I want to, for you to have my undivided attention. You know, and that's what I pray for you even this evening. If you come into Deuteronomy chapter 16 and 17, I pray that you, you uh, offer
1: to the Lord your undivided attention. That there's nothing else that's holding you.
0: You got from understanding and seeing what the Lord has for you to understand and see. So, let's start out with a word of prayer and we'll get into our study for this evening. Holy Father, we come to you this evening, but I pray humbly and I pray in spirit also broken on Broken in the sense to where there is nothing really to offer you at this moment, Lord. Simply our humble attention. We stand before a holy and righteous God. Who are we? Who is man that you are mindful? Of? I pray, Lord, that you would be mindful of you. That, Lord, we would seek you for all that repeats the life and the darkness. That we would seek you for wisdom. That this evening, Father, that we would sit at your feet and receive from you you would have for the church to hear according to your word. So Lord, I pray that you pour your spirit out upon us in this place. Father, that you may give an uh, amazing work in our hearts and our lives, Father. The way we think, Lord, we impacted, the way we live our lives, Lord, with To be conformed to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that we reflect His life and your word uh, in our lives. So, Lord, we commit this evening to the hands Father, and thank you for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Deuteronomy chapter 16, um, as we begin, uh, and then we're also going into chapter 17. So, this evening we'll be addressing the three times that the men of Israel are required to assemble before the Lord to uh, bring with them an offering. Uh, they uh, were called at least three times a year to come. And uh, they were to come before the Lord and unto the Lord in a prepared manner. And that's one of the things that I was alluding to. And, talking about here is that as we come to worship the Lord, we should come not with empty hands, but with, with something to offer Him, and that's our, our very hearts and our lives, and to surrender to Him our very wills and, uh, and allow Him to do what He pleases. But they were uh, to come to the Lord at least three times a year, and, uh, and this was the worship and to offer to the Lord, and they were to come prepared. This evening we'll also cover how the Levitical Precinct was used by God to serve the people by passing judgment on specific issues among them, and how the judges of Israel are to conduct themselves in doing so. We'll also learn about forms of worship that were an abomination to the Lord and were to be avoided, God giving ample warning to what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And finally, we'll learn about the relationship that any and all future kings of Israel were to have with the written word of God, or the law. So let's start out with Passover, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Abed, and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abed the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God, from the flock or the herd, at the place that the Lord will choose, to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. But at the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God, you shall do no work on it. So, talking about the Passover and the piece of unleavened bread, and what we're looking at here. Now God commanded the Israelites to observe the Passover in the month of Avon, which was the month in which God delivered them from Egypt. Passover was to be observed specifically at the tabernacle, this was a place that God had... Um, uh, set aside and assigned for them to come and for the Passover to be observed at. And later on, when the temple was built, it was going to be at the temple. That was where they observed the Passover. The first Passover, it wasn't in the tabernacle and it wasn't in the temple, it was in the specific, in the, in the, um, specific homes of the Israelites. While they were still in Egypt, they, um, they sacrificed. Um, the Lamb, and they placed its blood on the doorposts of the homes, and over the, head of the, the entry of every home, in accordance to what the Lord had commanded them to do, in order that the angel of death would pass over them, as judgment came upon every firstborn of Egypt. And most of us, if not all of us here, are familiar with that story, of that night when Passover was first observed. This was by command of the Lord, and they did as the Lord commanded, so that the angel of death again would pass over the homes of all of the Israelites. And yet, all of the Egyptians firstborn um, were struck down, and that was through God's judgment. Now, this is also looking forward prophetically to the time when God's Passover lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus would come and be sacrificed crucified on the cross, and by whose blood those who believe in him would be passed over in judgment and death. Death would not visit them, but they would know everlasting life in him. So, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ um, covers us, and when God the Father sees us, he sees righteousness in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so that that is the good news of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. As we believe in Him, we know salvation, deliverance from death, and deliverance from from sin. Now, along with the observance of the Passover, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the seven days after the Passover, or six days. So on the on the first day, it was the Passover. In First Corinthians chapter five, verse seven, and leading into the following verses, it says, "Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new one, as you." are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Verses 3 and 4 speaks of the piece of unleavened bread. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they came out uh, with unleavened bread. There was no leaven in their bread and it had a practical use. Uh, it was for the sake of uh, you don't have enough time for it to rise so. It was to remain with, without leaven. Now, the other thing with that is that um, they could cook it rapidly, but at the same time, it would last for quite some time as they were making their way into the wilderness, uh, escaping slavery and in and Egypt. It would last for quite a long time as they were in the wilderness. But we also know leaven is a symbol of sin and corruption. First Corinthians 5 6 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lot? So just a tiny bit of these. What what happens when we put that into a lump of dough? It affects just a portion of the dough, or the whole thing. The whole thing. It just it just takes a little bit. It doesn't take much. And so the Apostle Paul, keeping in mind the feast of unleavened bread and the Passover, as we also saw in First Corinthians five seven. The previous verse, First Corinthians five six says, "Your boasting is not good. Do you not know?" You've to leaven, leaven's so speaking of sin. Just as Israel was not to pass over to new life <laughs> having been delivered from slavery with leaven. And so again, this is looking forward. This is what's beautiful about looking at the Old Testament. You start to understand what it was that Paul was speaking of when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It's like, oh, okay, now I understand exactly why it is that he said what he said. Observance of Passover the peace of unleavened bread. There's to be no leaven. As they they were delivered from bondage under Egypt and delivered from that bondage, slavery, uh, they were to go forth without any leaven whatsoever. It also speaks of the purity of God's people, holiness. God says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And so, again, for me, as I said, that's why we can't skip over the Old Testament. We can't just go to the New Testament. Okay? As soon as we can, we should go to the Old Testament. We should read through, study it, and see how it all starts coming together. So it's amazing, as we see that Israel was called to walk in deliverance without leaven, so too we are called today to walk in the newness of life in Christ without leaven. Called to a pure walk with the Lord, to purity, to holiness, to righteousness. And I know we're not perfect. And God knows that we're not going to walk in perfection. But we are to strive to surrender ourselves every day at all moments to God's worship in our lives, uh, to submit to His governance in our life, that we may be corrected on sometimes a moment-by-moment basis to submit our thoughts to the Lord and allow Him to, to guide and direct us. Uh, remember that all wisdom belongs to the Lord. And so as we do also... Come to study the Word and allow it to minister to us, and you know hide God's Word in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. Um, these, these are the things that He. This is the work that He does in our lives—the work of sanctification, and we start conforming into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we should walk in the newness of life by the power of God's Spirit to walk purely before the Lord, uprightly before the Lord in His righteousness. Now, this observance was a memorial and a reminder of the time when the Israelites were delivered by God from slavery and death by the blood of the Lamb, and were to walk in the freedom absent of leaven. And again, so today we are delivered from death and enslavement to sin by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and are to live lives that are holy for the Lord is holy. Um, I was thinking about how we observe communion, the called to observe. On a regular, as often as we can, is what the Bible tells us. And we we do it quite often here at Refuge. And you can also do it at home, but you can observe communion really at any time. And so I would encourage you to do that. But communion is the observance of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ until he returns. So what we do is we proclaim his death. His death, what occurred on the cross is absolutely it was, it was an exchange, it was a, a victory, it was a conquering of sin. And so we know that by His shed blood, that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. We are conquerors uh, in Him over sin. And by His resurrection, we are conquerors in Christ over death. And by His, by his ascension, uh, we have the hope of eternally being with Him in His presence and all of His glory. And so, just keep in mind, when you participate in communion, when you partake of communion, you are celebrating and proclaiming that Jesus is both our salvation and our deliverer. So, in this time, the Israelites were called to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to celebrate God's deliverance of them from bondage and slavery, and how it is that they were to walk with him Um, in that freedom and that liberty with unleavened bread or without sin. And then we go on to the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, as we also know it. Verse 9, as we continue, says, You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give, as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. The peace of There is a joy that was to be observed you know, the Lord blesses people I love, I love the time of harvest. You know, as far as you know, we'll talk about like October, November time. Uh, it's just, I don't know. You, you go into the holiday season for, for us. You know, as, uh, you can say as Americans, we, we do uh, you know, the harvest. And, uh, we have uh, we start at that point to do a lot of. Uh, gatherings yeah, at yeah, different times even more than we do now. You know? And uh, it's just a joyful time and it reminds, it should remind us of the abundance and the provision of God. And we should have joyful hearts. It should be overflowing. And this is this time. This is this observance. This is this Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. It was a time of harvest that as they came, they came with thankful hearts with free will offerings of the Lord with just Hearts filled with gratitude. If the Israelites would set within the backdrop of this festival, think about this: um, a jeweler, oftentimes, how is it that he places, or what does the jeweler place, um, like a diamond ring on? Is it just on a counter, like a black velvet backdrop? You know why? So it'll stand out, so you can see its brilliance. That's why it's, a, it's a successful. <laughs> but, but it it, do, it does it. What it does is it, it brings out it, it uh, showcases the brilliance of the ring or the watch or whatever it is that they have. So I was thinking that if the Israelites would set within the backdrop of this festival, the bondage and slavery that they knew in Egypt then it would be appropriately celebrated and joyfully observed having been delivered by God and then blessed with all provision by a faithful and generous God. Think about this. I mean, for us, that would be wonderful, right? I mean, to, to set the past life as a backdrop to our new life in Christ. Now, the new grain offering that is brought on Pentecost was offered along with the wave offering of two loaves Of leavened bread unto the Lord. That's interesting because Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was without leaven. And now we have the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost that also involves two loaves of leavened bread unto the Lord. And it's a wave off before the Lord. Now fast forward to the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. When the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit came upon them, there was no sacrifice provided on that day. Since Jesus had already been sacrificed, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember when John the Baptist, he identified um, Jesus Christ and became the whole. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, the, the sin of the world. He knew exactly who Jesus was. Well, he had already been sacrificed. So there was no sacrifice provided on that day. No necessary sacrifice from that point this way. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and there was a great harvest on that day. Did you know that in the day of Acts chapter two. What was the harvest? People. Souls. Uh, that was a great harvest. Three thousand souls came to the believing knowledge of God Jesus Christ. They came to sal- salvation. Three thousand souls that would serve as the beginning of not only salvation being proclaimed to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. It's believed that the two loaves of bread that are weighed, that are, that are brought forth in the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, uh, represent the Jews and the Gentiles, both waiting before the Lord, and we are truly joyful. Again, um, having the backdrop of being enslaved, but yet being brought forth and delivered by God's grace and through the Lamb of God. Christ. Now we know that the church was founded on this day, and it was a deliberate representation and fulfillment of what had been foreshadowed in the previous observations. You can look at throughout the generations, throughout the years of the for the Israelites. After the Israelites. Again, you know, I asked the question: what, what would life look like if every day you approached it with Thanksgiving? And gave yourself generously to the Lord as a living sacrifice because it was your reasonable service for having been delivered from death and sin by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And if if you were to think about that on a regular, ongoing basis, how much weight would your problems really have? I bet things wouldn't be as weighty as we make them out to be. And we will continue to live with rejoicing in God's grace and love. Philippians 4 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And I love that verse because the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the Philippians, isn't saying, You know, rejoice in the Lord when things are going extremely well. When you feel blessed and you feel like the Lord is really providing for you, and, and, and he's just, uh, just abundance is coming your way. Rejoice at that time. No. Rejoice at all times. Always. And then again he says, again I will say, rejoice. And it has a big explanation for that. It, it, it's, it's emphatic. We are to apply it to our lives on a daily basis. Why? And how? How is it that we can rejoice even, even in our times of difficulty? How can we do that? We know we've been saved. We know that God's grace is poured out upon us. What troubles can come upon us that would remove us from the hand of God? Now what? We're hard pressed, but we're not. We're not crushed. Never. So we can rejoice always in the Lord, always in the Lord. Because the worst thing that could happen, as far as the world is concerned, it is is if we were to die today. Whose presence will be in? Is there any, is there any loss for the, for the Christian, for the believer? I have to say no. There's absolutely no loss whatsoever. For it to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But then we go on. We take a look at the Feast of Booze, verse 13. It says, You shall keep the Feast of Booze seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, is given year. The feast of booths. This was to be observed on the fifteenth day of Tishri, about September, October, about that time. This was a celebration and observance of God's deliverance and provision for the Israelites during the time that they were. In the wilderness, thus the feast of Booth, so the feast of tabernacles, is what it's also known as, or the feast of tents, when they were on the move and mobile, and yet, in, and yet, they weren't in the promised land. They were still on the move, and, and you can remember the whole time, forty years, the Israelites were in the wilderness, and although they had, they had sinned by doubting God by uh, not entering into the land when he told them to enter in. Um, so he made them to go back, and, and they wandered in the wilderness. God still did not forsake them. For at the time of uh, them being forsaken, um, they would have been done. He still provided. Their clothes did not wear out. Their shoes did not wear out. They never went hungry. And even though they were thirsty to the point of murmuring, and backbiting, and complaining, and all that, they still didn't go without food, without water, without anything. He fed them all the way through, he covered them. He led them with a cloud during the day, and a pillar of fire at night. Imagine that. God's presence always there for them to see even. That That would be absolutely amazing. So he never forsook them, but This was a time that they were to celebrate observance of God's deliverance and provision during their time in the wilderness, the the Feast of Booths. They were to, again, look back at that time in remembrance, never forgetting that time when God both delivered and provided for them. It was both the beginning and conclude, this would uh, begin and conclude with the day of rest, by the way. So the first day would be a day of rest, and the last day of this observance would also be a day of rest. A day of contemplating what the Lord had done. And the whole time that they were they, they were taking these tents and they were them they lived in these tents, for the whole time in the Peace of Booth, they would tell the stories and be reminded of everything that the Lord did uh, by God's faith. Would be, which would be a wonderful observation also.
1: What I also want to point
0: out is that all the days of rest were centered on the Lord and without any personal agendas. These were days in which the rest and refreshment was known in the Lord. I think it would do us well if we did this more often. You know, the things that we, you know, the rest that we take, the time of uh, refreshment that we take is, is all centered on the Lord. Even if when, when we do long vacation. By the way, at this point, um, most of the peoples in the world did not know what a day of rest was. There was no vacation. They worked every day. That's just what they did. So for the people of Israel, God's people, he gave them certain times of um, holidays, of times of remembering the Lord. And so he did have, He did give his people time to rest. But they were all centered around the Lord, I think it would do as well to consider the Lord any time we take some time off from of work, and, uh, and go on vacation, just asking him, just thanking him for the for the time and the opportunity uh, to go off on your just Kind of regroup, consider him. Um, verses sixteen and seventeen tells us about how the the men of Israel were required three times a year to come. Before the Lord to observe the feast of unburned bread, the feast of weeks, and the feast of booze, and that they would appear before the Lord, not empty handed, but prepared to worship Him. Um, again, I remind you that they would go to the tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple when it was built. Uh, these three feasts were to be observed, and they were to show up ready to worship the Lord with their offerings, never empty handed. From what the Lord had blessed them with, they were to come. And uh, again, that for us, you know, you think of of the church today. Again, we, we ought to come at some point to church. Not so much, I, I know at first we would we, uh, we come to church just kind of finding out what the church has for us. What does the church have to offer? How is it that, that the church can serve me? But at some point, we kind of we kind of get to the point of figuring out that the church, I'm part of the church,
1: and the reason why
0: I come to church is to worship the Lord and praise God, in, in and I hope to be a part of the church, of the body of Christ, and therefore come prepared to make my own offering, um, the praise of my lips, my heart, my will, Everything about me is an offering to the Lord. And so you come prepared. Prepared to just worship and honor and praise the Lord. And um, in your offering is is the very praise of your heart. So you come prepared. And so that's what I pray for uh, for this church, right? That we would come together. Because as it says in verse 17, every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. What has he given you? Would that worship him? Worship him with what he has blessed you with. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Because we ought to remember God's deliverance just as the Israelites were commanded to remember God's deliverance and provision. He is faithful. He loves us. He will never forsake us. Love love us with an everlasting love. So we should remember that and come to Him with an attitude of thankfulness and joyfulness in our hearts. So then we take a look at Justice. Chapter 16, uh, verses 18 through 20 says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept the bride. For a bride blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is given you. So judges and officers were to be appointed in every single town so that they may oversee and that they would uh, judge uh, certain situations, uh, reviewing uh, issues among the people. But there were some some guidelines in a manner in which they, should, they were to apply this righteous judgment. These guidelines are, number one, don't pervert justice. Uh, perversion of justice uh, can be done in so many different ways. And um, and so the number one thing that the Lord told him is, "Hey, listen, don't pervert justice. Leave it pure, the way it is. Justice is according to God's word." And so, don't number one, don't pervert justice. Number two, don't show partiality, whether powerful or weak. It really doesn't matter. Do not show partiality, whether you know them or not know them. It doesn't matter. Um, you don't show partiality for for anyone at any time in any set of circumstances. Don't show partiality. And number three, do not accept a bribe. A bribe. Um, how much do you wear? What about the gift you bought for? Um, you know, is it $500 under the table, $1,000, $10,000, $20,000, $100,000? What's your price? And for a person who was appointed as a judge or an officer, to oversee the issues of the people and to judge the people with righteous judgment, they were they should never be able to be bribed at all. Not for any amount of money, not for any position, power, prestige, anything like that. So no bribes. I was thinking of Lady Justice. So Lady Justice is holding in her hand a set of scales, right? And um, she also has something... It's a blindfold. A blindfold. Because she's only to hold the balances and allow them to speak for themselves. The blindfold represents objectivity. Justice should be administered objectively, without fear or favor, regardless of identity, money, power, weakness, or uh, power or weakness. So either way, just impartially, judging, Whatever is before her. That's justice. It doesn't matter who is before her. The balances are to be weighed and determined, the outcome in a righteous and just manner. Sometimes we can have pity on people because of the poor, or this or that. And the Lord says, no, you do not show partiality to anyone. It has to do purely with justice, and that's it. This is how the judges and officers were to be responsible and accountable in all matters of judgment. But then we go on from there to abominations. We see abominations taking place from chapter 16, verse 21 through chapter 17, verse 7. We start out with these forbidden forms of worship. You shall not plant any tree... As an asher beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. In other words, don't bring into proximity anything of the world into the worship of God. Nothing. There is the altar of God upon which he is worshipped, and anything added to that perverts and is an evil thing. As we are offering our worship to God and something else, or someone else. And so he warned them. It, it's interesting that he has a warning. Don't, don't erect anything beside the altar. Can you imagine, it's like, okay, so we're going to worship the Lord. But along with the Lord, we're going to worship other things. Like that. that would be odd to say. That would be odd to do. And now, in this day... What was common for the Canaanites were to worship in this manner. Um, they were evil people, an abomination to the Lord, and so the Lord had to warn them. You may be inclined to do this. Don't do it. Oh, Let me ask you this do you think that some of this is done today in our churches? Have you ever heard of the secret sensitive church? Have you ever heard of churches playing like secular music churches? Well, I have to say secular music. Yeah. Like uh it's it's true. Yeah. Isn't it silly? So, I mean, can you imagine uh, uh, and these, these are, how, about, how about we raffle? We're going to raffle a harvest. No know how many people you brought in. Right? Yeah. Is that yeah. cool? Um, I, I know. I, I can go on. It's just different things that churches tend to do in order to uh, pull in the world. Well, when you, when you do that, the, the danger with that is that not only do you attract them with that, oftentimes we have to continue going down that path in order to keep them. And so, I can tell you that you know, just, just let the church be the church. It should, I mean, we'll call the purity and holiness being separate from the Lord, from, from the world, and so um, separate from the world and separate separated unto the Lord. And so we should be pure and holy. Um, there really should be Nothing from the stage leading the worship that is, you know, secular like that, because it's not—it's not honoring to the Lord. You know what I mean? We're here to worship God, and, and, and no one else. Um. So yes, it, it is done in today's church, and not not. There's a lot of things that could be considered the of today. So. God's people were warned then, and God's people are warned today. Just, just worship the Lord. Nothing to no one else. Not a person, just not everything else. And then verse one. It's funny that we have to do this, but it says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish. Any defect, whatever. Or that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So an abomination, it's an evil thing. In other words, do not offer leftovers. Don't, Don't offer leftovers. Why is it that people still today respond to the Lord with pity and offer Him leftovers? Things that have been used and abused. And think that that's okay. It's kind of like, you know what, I've got my use out of it. Here, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to the it, and it happens all the time. It's like this thing is like beaten up beyond recognition, and I'll give it to you. You, you can use it now within the church. So, thank you. You know, what, what do you say to that? You know, there's a, I know that there's a joke about uh, about this. And there's a farmer that. His, his cow had twins. And you've heard this before. And the farmer's cow had twins, and the two calves were there. And so he had promised the Lord that he would offer one to him. And, but he just couldn't decide on which one to give to the Lord. And so time went on, and his wife kept asking him, you know, well, which one are you going to give to the Lord, offer to the Lord, and he said, I'm not sure which one. And then one day he came, He so, says, wow, what, what, what happened? And he says, the Lord's half <laughs> He couldn't decide, but now he did decide, right? The, the one that died was the one that he was going to offer to the Lord. And unfortunately, it passed away, so that was the Lord's So mine survived. We, we tend sometimes to just offer to the Lord whatever is left over. And we should always offer to the Lord... Not our leftovers, not things that are defective or blemished, because you know, for the Israelites in that day, it was it was an abomination. It was just it was just the evil thing to do. It was it had to do with the heart, and that's really what the Lord is interested in: is, is what what is your heart like? What are you giving to the Lord? What are you offering to the Lord? Is it defective? It, is it blemished, or are you giving Him the very best? You see, the Israelites were guilty of this, even after this, and were rebuked by Malachi. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And In Malachi chapter 1 verse 8 says, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor, and will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. It was a strong rebuke, and he goes on. I would encourage you to read Malachi and and see all that he rebuked them with. But it doesn't start there. That was only a portion of what he had told the Israelites. So they were guilty of this very thing. Uh, the blind, the lame, the blemished, the defective were being presented to the Lord and offered to him, and so Malachi rebuked them. Uh, this, I believe, should really serve us today to make us think and allow God to examine our hearts and reveal to us. If this is indeed what we may be doing, our time, talent, and treasure, how is it, what is it that we're offering to the Lord? Is it our leftover time, or, or are we being delivered with our time, talent, that, our gifts, and our treasure, that is our finances, all of those things? Is it the very best, or is it just or is it just What are we offering? Are we giving God that which is blemished and lame and blind, those things that are at best, second best? I pray that we may always give God our first fruits in everything, our best in everything and in every way. And then verses 2 through 5. These were some judges that were instructed to not take the word of a single person in the accusation of someone else, uh, but really they were to launch an investigation and hear people out if there was more than one accuser. So let's start uh, chapter 17, verse 2. It says, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then he shall bring out your out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and he shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. So let's stop there from a moment. Uh, it wasn't just by the word of one, just one verse in and says, hey, Joe, it's like, you're worshiping idols and, you know, son just worshiping.
1: Anything and everything other than
0: the one true living God. Well, it has to come by the by the word of more than one person. Two or more people were were to witness this very thing. in fact in the New Testament, first Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, does not allow for the reception of an accusation against an elder unless it's by the mouth of two or more witnesses. An abomination is identified as an evil thing, or something in direct opposition the word of God. It's a transgression. In this case, we see God addressing idolatry, the worship of anything in the place of God, an idol. And he said that it was a capital offense, and it deserved death. Uh, Verses 6 and 7, as we continue, says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. The person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So he shall purge or drive out the evil or evil person from their midst. So if a person was found guilty, it was again a, a capital crime, a capital offense, and that person was to be put to death. To allow evil within the people who profess to be God's people would not be commendable. Tolerance in this way was not acceptable, but rather was to be dealt with. Now, the severity of idolatry among God's people was identified, and the evil was to be purged out or driven out in this manner. It was not to be allowed among the congregation of God's people. And this is, this is obviously not what we need what we practice today. This is not what we do. Um, today, though, uh, this should remind us that sin is to be confronted and dealt with in a like manner. Think about the severity of sin and the tolerance of sin and, and really compromise in our, in our own lives and, and really within the body of Christ, within the church itself. What, it, what we had pointed out earlier is that A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? It's like cancer. If it's undealt with, then it spreads. Gangrene spreads. If you don't deal with gangrene right away, it spreads, and it starts killing. Uh, First a toe, then a a foot, and then uh, the lower part of the leg, and, and I've seen it happen too many times. The severity of sin among God's people. This is what we have before us. And today this should remind us that sin is to be confronted and dealt with in a like manner. In a manner of speaking, that is, it should be completely forsaken and put to death. So many times we're trying to reform, you know, reform the flesh. It's like, we can fix the flesh. No, that's us to do with counseling and see what we can do with our lives don't the flesh. You don't reform the flesh. You don't do that. Really, it's a one-step process. It really is. You can deal with all kinds of things. But in God's economy, according to the Word of God, there's only one thing they want to do with the flesh. crucify, Put it to death. Sin cannot be managed or fixed. It must also be put to death, completely forsaken. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I think that's worth repeating. Romans chapter six verses six and seven says we know that our old self was crucified with him that is with Jesus Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to what to nothing to nothing no power so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Die to ourselves. Take up our cross and follow Jesus. We we can't do anything with the flesh, like we said, except for this is simply for the cross. We have to cross. We make justifications for the flesh. We excuse the flesh. We say, "I'm Irish," or "I'm Italian," or "I'm Mexican." I'm German. It's like apparently. All nationalities have anger problem. <laughs> we all have strong temperaments. We're all passionate in something. So we're all justified in our sin. In God's economy, according to God, and it's all wrong. Crucify it. Be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You you need to, on a regular basis, submit to Him. And allow Him to conform your life to more closely resemble Jesus Christ in your lives. So, this thing about how I was raised, and what nationality I have and all that—they're all sinful. Hmm. There's not righteous, no not ones. All of that sin and falsehood we can worry about. So, we need to understand this. Listen, our old selfish. In Christ, sin no longer has the power to what's We're no longer enslaved to it. Remember, we've been delivered from bondage. We've been delivered from slavery. That was Passover. We go into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We ought to walk in the newness of life. We are to rejoice in the abundance of God and His provision. We should, we should rejoice in the Lord. We should walk in the newness of life and not make provision for the flesh, and not justify our sin, but purge it out, drive it out, for it's evil, it's an abomination to the Lord. It shouldn't be, it wasn't allowed to be in their midst, and it shouldn't be allowed in our midst. Likewise, the fellowship should be united in the, in the desire of putting sin to death. It is an exhortation, exhortation and teaching, even rebuking at times, identifying when one is in sin. And Calling them to repentance, even, even among the brethren. We ought to do that. For, for are so like think this is of a of an enemy, right? But, but correction, sometimes we are we are wounded by our own brothers and sisters, not, not because of anything, but because of a rebuke and because of love. So we should also be able to accept from one another, hey, this is wrong. This is what I'm seeing in your life. Am, am I seeing this correctly? We should be able to, yeah, you know what? Confess our sins to one another in that way and allow our brothers and sisters to pray for us and help us out. And hold our arms at the times when we are really needing them to come alongside us. But most importantly, 1 John 1 9 is conditional. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's. Ultimately, what I pray do is that we confess our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to forgive us of our sins because He is faithful and just to be that great. And all Now we go on to justice within the people. Verses 8 through 13 as we continue. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns, that is too difficult for you. Then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in the office in those days. And you shall consult them. They shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision. The decision, which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the, the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall curse the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So there, there is reason for, for this, of course, but Anyone that would rise up and uh, not take the direction of those who serve as judges um, were to be put out. So these are cases of murder or assault. Um, They were cases too difficult for just everyone to to deal with. Um, These were cases that were brought before the Levitical priesthood and those who were appointed to oversee these types of matters. Um, What they decided was to be observed. If people acted contrary to their decision, then that was determined to be evil, and that person is acting presumptuously, is what we read here, and that person was to be put to death. It was considered a capital offense and punishable by death. This was so because it was considered evil by the Lord, and that person was to be driven out from the midst of God's people. And again, we know the importance of of not allowing uh, an abomination, evil, evil, that which is contrary to the Lord to be allowed to remain within the people of God. A person who proclaims to be a child of God and yet does not allow God to govern him is in direct contradiction to what he declares. It's like what we say, like we we, uh, we ask the Lord and then he gives us the answer we don't want, and we say, no, Lord, right? That, that, is, <laughs> that is a contradiction. You're calling him Lord and saying no at the same time whether by declaration or by action. You know, we're we're declaring the same thing. It's it's a contradiction. Um, It was essential that the people respect the authority that the Lord had put in place, and therefore, to go against the Levitical priests' judgment was to go against the Lord's judgment, because they were acting in accordance to His word. When we today take or leave God's word as we please, we in a very real way are doing very same thing. I remember one time uh, years ago um, having this issue and uh, going before a couple of pastors and they wanted to just resolve the matter. Uh, The matter was resolved and so um, they decided that this this is what you guys should do. And so I I took that. I can tell you with a clear conscience I was falling out exactly what the pastors were telling. me. But the other party refused to do it. Refused. Didn't, didn't want to do it. Said no, won't do it. And even left that church because he was in such rebellion and just didn't, didn't want to follow it out. To me, that's one of those things so where if we submit to the leadership is the overseen, if we submit to the leadership of the church, we should submit to it. And trust that the Lord is giving them uh, wisdom and they have discernment, and they're not going to bring a judgment upon our situation that, that is not right. you know, And if it is, then we ought to point it out spiritually. And, uh, but if it's not, even if you don't like it, you should follow. Like, okay, I, you know what, I accept that. And that's it. We'll just go down that path. With this, it was very clear that God was assigning certain people Will pursue these difficult matters in the lives of his people. He was saying, the decisions that they make, make sure you follow them. To go against them and their decisions is like going against me it's evil, it's an abomination. In John 14, 15, Jesus speaking, he says, if you love me, you will keep like my so this is very much the same thing. And then we have finally um, a king and the word or the law. Verse 14 When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, he you shall set his king over you. And not put a foreigner over here, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, he shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. So God was looking forward 400 years. 400 years. It was perfect knowledge. He was looking forward 400 years to a time when Israel would indeed demand a king just like the other nations. And he would give him a king. Israel's first king was who? Saul. Second king? David. Second king? David. David, right? So, This would be allowed The Lord was allowing this But in the way that God prescribed The king number one would be chosen by God No no foreigners would be allowed to uh, Be king or reign over His people only from the people of God The king was not to acquire many horses Uh, Horses um, What they speak of is Is to assemble uh, An army like uh, A bunch of tanks Just to, to rely on the power Of the army instead of on God. And so he said, the king is not to acquire many horses. And definitely not from Egypt. The king was not to lead the people back to Egypt for anything, including the acquiring of horses. The king was not to acquire many wives, because this will cause his heart to turn away from the Lord. The king was not to acquire excessive riches, silver and gold. The king was to make a copy of God's word, that is the law, writing it before the Levitical priesthood, and under their care and direction. The king is never to allow the word to depart from him. So this was his choosing, his will was to be exercised to never allow the word to depart from him. And he was to read the word all every day of his life, all the days of his life, so as to learn how to revere or honor or fear the Lord and know how to keep the word, and to keep him humble before the people, that he would not be puffed up with pride, leaving them dwell. That he would not stray, he would not go to the left or to the right, that he would would stay on the straight and narrow. Solomon in the mind. You you guys know how many wives he had? Kind of wrecked this one. 700. 700. Okay, so let's let's go a step further. How many concubines did he have? 300. even imagine that. I mean, it, I, I can imagine that. 700 wives and 300 wives. And you know what they get to the tribe? Now, we know that what is it that when, when God told you, you you could ask anything you know, what did he ask for? He asked for wisdom. Because he asked for wisdom and not riches not anything else. He gave all of that as well. Right. But with that, we also sought everything under the sun to see what would make him happy. And the conclusion of his life is that he said, all of that there's nothing new there under the sun. To fear God and obey his commandments, this demands all. That's what the Lord said to the beginning. I mean, if we read this, right? This is exactly the Lord. Solomon could have saved himself a lot of time and a lot of anguish by simply going back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, and reading that and and going along with that. We would save ourselves a lot of problems if we would simply go and learn and know the Word of God and apply it to our lives. His heart was turned away from the Lord, he went through quite a bit. And yet, the conclusion that he came to was the very thing that God had told him to do to begin with. It was all in there. And guess what? He had to write this. Not only did he know it, but according to this right here, he had to write out, the Lord wanted every single king of Israel to be a scribe to be a teacher, to know the Word inside and out, to be guided, directed, kept by, protected by the very Word of God. He wanted to make sure that his people were led by his Word. And yet, even today, that is the very thing that, as the men of our homes, we are to know the very Word of God, that we also can lead our homes in saying that we are to be scribes in our own homes. We are to be knowledgeable of the Word of God, applying the Word of God, leading our wives and our children according to the Word of God. This very thing doesn't just apply to the kings of Israel, but to the priests of our homes as well, To our wives and our wives and wives. But every king was to know the word of God very well, and would be governed by it, and led by it, and covered by it. So it's Heavenly Father, may we come to also love the word of God. In this way, that we may learn to fear you, our God and our Lord. And honor you with our lives, allowing you to govern us. That we may live in response to your love for us. Remembering that we too have been delivered from sin and death by your grace, and give you, in response, our first fruits, our very best, with grateful hearts, filled with thanksgiving and rejoicing in your goodness. May it all be to your In Jesus' name